1: Today, I'm joined by Alex Gutentag. Uh, She is a public school teacher in California and a former union representative. Uh, And she's been in my Twitter feed lately with some of the most um, well-framed positions on lockdown and COVID and this dystopian hellscape that we're all navigating. So welcome, Alex. I'm really happy to have you on.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Excellent. So I think um one thing that you know I've already mentioned you are in California which has been the the you kind know, of the subject of a lot of chats uh, on the internet and and off and it seems to be a, a bit of um almost religious center now with COVID uh, it's, it's one of the most kind of restrictive States in, in the U S and like, what, what's, what's your vibe being, being on the ground? I mean, I, I can maybe deduce from your tweets, but maybe you tell me in person the, how, how is it to be in, in California at the moment?
2: Um, well, it's interesting. I think that California probably represents some of the worst kinds of Excesses of lockdown politics. Um, and we have been, in a lot of ways, the last to start some of the reopening phases. I think we are dead last in terms of schools being open. Um, our students have the least amount of opportunities for in person learning in the country. Um, and I'm, you know, in a city, so a lot of the major cities, I think, are very invested in COVID restrictions and, like you said, some of the religious rituals around it. Um, So it's a bit dystopian, given the fact that we also have huge levels of inequality here, really high homelessness. Um, California actually has, I think... um, a quarter of the entire country's homeless population. Um, So there is a lot of, on the one hand, expanding inequality, um, huge rising levels of low-paid contract work, gig work. um, And on the other hand, for affluent professionals, a ton of attachment to... um, kind of mainstream news, COVID narratives, and all of the things that go with that, like masking, social distancing, Uh etc. And every time there is a push to reopen, um, coming from some of more small businesses um, in the state, there's always a pushback from a lot of liberal cities saying things like, this is going to kill everyone, this is genocidal, etc. So... It's pretty extreme here.
0: Yeah, I can
1: imagine that. It's um is there any political will now pushing back against it or is it just, you know, yeah. same old same old?
2: Yeah, there is because there is a recall. There was a recall petition for Newsom and they got enough signatures, so I'm constantly now getting emails from <laughs> Newsom <laughs> saying like we have to stop the recall. Um and saying all, everybody behind the recall is like a avid Trump supporter, an anti-vaxxer, um, anti-masker. These are the things <laughs> they say to like get people to be against the recall. Um, so there is a lot of pushback and especially from small business owners and also certain places that are more red, like Orange County. There's been a lot of pushback. Um, but... Some of it has definitely come because of some of the missteps of Newsom um, in terms of just showing clear hypocrisy, because he uh, famously went to this fancy restaurant in Napa called the French Laundry, where dinners are Mm -hmm. up to $850 per person. Um, And he also had his kids going to in-person private school um, while the public schools were closed. So he has brought some of it on himself for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this has definitely been a, a big headline uh, on the internet. People were really skewering him over it. But I feel like it's uh, you know it's cold comfort to the people who you know will have their businesses destroyed by this. Um, and it, it is it is really interesting, like what the mimetic effect of this of these policies are, because you know I'm I'm in Eastern Europe. I'm in Romania, and um, you know i I feel like if if there was some independence in how this stuff is to be handled i don't I don't think we would have had these extreme lockdowns and everything, but we've had this this happen in kind of a centralized location. It was tied to you know very high status people who were saying, "Okay, you need to wear the mask, you need to lock down indefinitely and all this type of stuff uh, and it seems to have just caught on everywhere in the world because we have this here now, and it's you know. You know, where you have intermittent lockdowns here as well, like businesses opening, closing, you know, on the whim of the government. Um, it's I, I don't know how much of this is European policy. If it would have, you know, worked in Europe the same way, but it does feel like it's kind of trickling down from you know, these high status memes that we see in, in America, because, you know, it's, it's, it's quite shocking to people, you know, who, who come here that, you know, everything's downstream from America. It's about maybe four or five years later, you know, people still like the show Friends here, but, you know, it's it's still it's still pretty, like, intensely American. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, you wrote a really, really interesting piece in the Bellows, um, which was still pinned on your profile, and it's uh, it's one of the you know best summaries of, of what's going on in terms of lockdowns and COVID and um, and you know gig work and everything that you, you mentioned in there. So um, I, I want to ask you about um, kind of what do you see the causes of this because it, it it does kind of put me in a bit of a conspiratorial mood to see that you know this has been the the largest wealth transfer that I've ever witnessed in my life. And it's it's, you know, you can't really you can't talk your way around it. This is, you know, this is impoverishing the middle and, you know, working class and it's moving money to like people like Amazon, which who are not people, they're you know, shareholders. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm I'm curious what you see like as I don't know, the Causality is hard to pin down, but it seems to be quite a concerted effort.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I think that the numbers right now are something like, um, I think uh, billionaires made something like $3.7 trillion and workers lost $3.9 trillion. So there is a very clear correspondence between... Um, who lost money and who gained money through lockdowns? Um, I think the question of how it happened and why, there's certain parts of it that we may never know because we're not, you don't have total access to every single decision that's made and why it's made. But there are certain things that you can say are definitely a clear economic agenda. Like in the United States, we had the CARES Act and in the CARES, the first stimulus. And in that, there was a hundred and something, like $135 billion in tax cuts for millionaires. Um, You know, that's not a conspiracy. That was just the legislation that our representatives passed. So I think that we live in a class society and there's a huge profit motive for the people at the top. And in a lot of ways, they kind of, Live some in somewhat of a different world um, than the vast majority of other people. So, I think that the incentive for tech companies and the incentive for every you know arm of finance to take a crisis and make money off of it is always going to be there, whether it's an explicit plan or not.
1: Yeah. So. In this case things were already kind of moving towards digitization but it did really speed up the plans for almost you know every every tech corporation that has it in its in its businesses to to serve your needs through your screen rather than through your community that that's what to me it feels like it accelerated every process that was kind of already pointing in that direction because if stuff can be solved for your community you don't really need amazon you don't need the the screens to to serve you so in in that way it was like pretty much a a accelerationist process um yeah yeah
2: yeah exactly and i mean i think with a lot of tech services we think of it as some sort of adding something to us or giving something to us but a lot of certain services have taken things away and then replaced them so if we're thinking about gig economy um for something like Uber, you're taking away access to like car ownership, taking away access to public transportation and replacing it with a service in which um, people are treated as totally disposable. So these things are going to become um, increasingly profitable as also there's a lot of incidents where um, there's public money so for example what happened in education we have now a ton of public money being transferred to tech companies um, to provide educational tech because everything happened online and then as schools open up we're also we also are seeing a lot of public money being transferred to private pharmaceuticals or testing companies to make things safe for reopening so these are all um transfers also from the public sector to the private sector
0: yeah yeah it's
1: it's interesting how um you know this this whole gig economy um show seems to be played as you know okay we're we're empowering people we're giving you the the tools to you know become an entrepreneur you know it's it's always fun in a in a very positive way and this extends from you know things like uber which yeah. you know is driving a car around to stuff like OnlyFans or even more you know advanced forms of, of sex work that you can do online uh, or at least intermediate through online and um it's it's very interesting to me that a lot of corporations are seem to be just running cover for this stuff like it's not you know they're they're not ever uh you know outlining the fact that this might have a downside um and i feel like you know the the main um the the main vibe and culture is you know don't, don't speak up against us because you are you're attacking the people doing it but you know typically when people do you know offer a critique of this or they're critiquing the corporations which don't you know they don't protect the workers they don't you know they're not obligated to give you anything it's like they're you know they're just throwing you know, bred into the into the circus, yeah. and you know, expecting you to thank them. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's it's a weird, it's a very very uh, strange relationship we're expected to have with these corporations now. Uh, and in a way, I mean, I, I come from a more, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say libertarian, but kind of more free market bent. And now I've I've kind of understood that okay. You know, there there are there's a certain scale at which these companies, you know, their um, you know, the, the, the powers they accrue um are not on par with the obligations that they have or obligations that can be imposed upon them in any way by anyone, uh, especially multinational corporations. And and you see this here in Romania as well. Like they, you know, they come in, they set the terms, they you know, everyone wants them here, obviously, because they're job creators, they pay taxes you know, for as much as they do, they improve the economy. They bring bring all sorts of uh, all sorts of things uh, in here. Um, But at the same time, it leads to what I think you called it in the in in your piece, like the theft of a meaningful life. Like, could you expand that? Like what in what ways are is this form of living, um, you know, robbing us of what's meaningful?
2: Um, Well, specifically, I guess, with uh, what happened with lockdowns, um, there were huge increases in um, mental health uh, issues. And especially I think for um, adolescents in the US, there was a 30% increase in their mental health related ER visits. Um, tons of examples of also in the UK, Canada, of you know calls to suicide hotlines, lockdown being mentioned as a reason for suicidal ideation. In the US, we had something like one in four young adults contemplating, like thinking of suicide, very dark statistics. And um, I think the levels of depression um, and anxiety have really shown that (laughs) you cannot just take uh, public services and also communities away from people and expect that to be sustainable in the long term. And I think a lot of the time... um, with lockdown um, where people who will defend it will still think of it as like a temporary thing, but it wasn't two weeks, it was indefinite. And so if you're a teenager, if you're a young person and you're having uh, being told that you're indefinitely not gonna see your friends, you don't necessarily have a future, (laughs) you can't do any of the things that um, many other generations got to experience um, there's no economic opportunities that's just going to really grind you down, no matter how much you're told that it's all going to be fine or it's all part of a plan. So um, I think that part of why I, uh, things are maybe opening up now is just because it's not sustainable to subject people to a life that is completely on a screen and uh, separate from other people. Eventually our animal need to be around other people, I think will win out. Um, But there's definitely a very strong corporate push to make sure we're atomized um, and constantly using digital services. And that's not a conspiracy theory, that's just how they make money. And (laughs) that's just how the data economy um, you know, uses
1: people as products. Yeah, and in a way, it's it's inevitable, like you say, because this is this is the business model. You really do need to be on platform. You know, that's that's how they they make their money. Yeah, like, you know, every second you're on there, and yeah, they're they're strongly incentivized to you know create algorithms that convince you that you know the the next ten minutes on Twitter are really precious to you. Yeah. <laughs> even <laughs> if you're doing if you'd like to do something else. But it's 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 quite yeah. surprising how how good they are. Like, you know, I, I keep trying to, to customize my experience by getting all these blockers and things yeah. like that. But they don't work. <laughs> it it's, doesn't really work.
2: Yeah, and it's really frightening to think of for adults you know screens and phones and social media is super super addictive so for kids who are growing up on it who don't know anything else it's just going to be kind of a disaster because there'll be all these little like dopamine addicts grow who don't know anything else who've been wired to be constantly on screens and have no other reference point um so I don't know what they're going to be like when they all grow up.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've you've kind of been in contact with kids. I, I don't know what ages
2: do you teach. Um, I teach middle school age, so that's like eleven. Okay. And, yeah.
1: Yeah. So you, you've seen kids who've already kind of been sm- smushed into the screens early on. And, you know, do you see any kind of changes between generations? I don't know how long you've been doing this. But, you know, is there is there kind of a, a, a tech tell that kids have been immersed in this stuff a little bit too much or? Um, well, I feel like just, well,
2: I've been teaching for about eight years and just a just the prevalence of phones and their need to always look at it, I think has increased, but it's not just kids. I feel like I've seen that same thing to happen to adults too. Um, I think with kids until, um, you know, they were sh- taken out of school for like 12 months and put on a screen, it wouldn't have necessarily been my primary concern. But one thing that I think, um, is very important to think about for them now is that, um, especially for younger kids, so not necessarily um, the kids I interact with most, um, they are still developing concepts of, you know, what is another person. And if a lot of that concept just comes through a screen, it's gonna be really hard for them to differentiate um, another person in real life versus someone they see on the screen, like for example, on a television show. Um, or a celebrity. And I think that um, it's important to keep in mind that it's not just incidental that kids are having this experience, but I think they're in fact being targeted in a certain way. Because if they can start using certain products or have certain modes of thinking from an early age, that will be really profitable. Um, and also for schools, um I think kids are also being targeted with education technology because if they have to grow up and have a job where their boss is not a person, but is an app, it's very important for them to train at an early age for their teacher is not a person, but their teacher is an app. Um, so yeah. the labor model that you're expecting kids to go into is kind of reflected by the education that you're giving them.
1: Yeah, I I keep hearing that from from people that I know who have kids as well because they say, oh, I'd really love to take away the phone or Mm -hmm. I'd really love to kind of give my child at least a, a screens light experience. But there's always that concern that they're not, you know, keeping up with the tech that is yeah. going to help them in the labor market. Um, I mean, do you see any any option? I mean, I don't know if you you know about this stuff, but is there, you know, have you seen anyone do this right, where there's kind of a, a balance of how much you interact with this stuff and and how much you... Maybe, I don't know, put the kid in a bunker or something. <laughs> it's, it's pretty hard. It sounds almost impossible to do. But are people doing this? I don't
2: know. I mean, I feel it seems like an impossible situation. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, so. yeah. kids kids want to be like other kids.
1: That's an, you know.
2: Yeah, and they also want to be like their parents and the adults in their life. So if they see all the adults in their life uh, on screens and stuff, that's also something they're going to emulate. So it's really an impossible situation I think for parents.
1: Yeah, I was actually I met up with a a friend of mine today and she was there with her baby and yeah, the baby's super cute and she had all sorts of toys but one of the toys was a was a, a kind of a mock iPhone and I was like this is a bit strange <laughs> what, 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 what does she want that for i guess it's an imitative toy because it's like you know she either wants your iphone or she gets the mock iphone with right, you know the, yeah. the dead dead screen uh, which is less stimulation yeah, but nature. i was like that's a pretty strange toy yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't ask about it. But now that we're talking about this, it occurred to me like, yeah, that's, that's, that's very newfangled thing. You wouldn't have that in the past. That's not a wooden horse, for sure. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I'm curious with with kids because you said that you know um, they 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 there's they seem to be losing opportunities to socialize normally and you know to to encounter people as people rather than as you know 2D representations on the screen. Like, w- what other things do you feel like we're we're losing with with this? Just being away from each other. Like, is there is there? Because I mean, at least for me, I know I, I'm I'm losing you know uh, social points by the second. And, I'm not very, you know, I'm I'm, I'm adding to my autism <laughs> with every passing day, <laughs> but it's uh it, it's it is I don't know it's it, it feels almost like a religious loss, like we're losing soul, you know? Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah.
2: I feel like a lot of people, including myself, will compare, you know, like lockdownism or um, mask attachment or any of the things that have gone along with COVID to a religion. But um, there, there's parts of religion that are much more spiritual or have to do with, you know, profound existential questions that are missing from the COVID religion. So it's like only the most ritualistic parts, but none of the meaningful part of a religion. Um, and I think that some of the things that we're losing seems like it's been a long time in the making. So um, probably for us versus our parents' generation, versus our grandparents' generation, communities have already started to fall apart or people have become more and more separate, more and more atomized. Um, And this was just a huge catalyst to um, amplify that. And I think that there's a certain way also in which, when the culture is also so politicized, and you have to take sides, or you can't have open debate, you can't like disagree with your friends, you can't disagree with your community. Um, if you disagree with your community, you might be ostracized. That is also super isolating too. So um, I think that there is a, definitely a loss of an ability to Go outside, go to a local space, see people you know, talk to people you know um, without it being intensified along certain uh, divisive topics. Um, And that's been really, really amplified now by the fact that you have to cover your face to go to a public space, you have to um, uh, engage in whatever... Kind of sanitizing practices uh, you're told are necessary to enter into certain public spaces. There's all these kind of internal uh, stops, internal checkpoints almost, and you can't meet strangers really because you can't see them. <laughs> so the community dissolving yeah. yeah. is basically what's happened.
0: Yeah.
1: And I I take your point with this kind of just being an accelerant to to a trend that was already happening. Like, I I have the feeling that, you know, this this whole thing started at the time when we didn't really need each other anymore like Mm -hmm. you know back in the day you know what however long you want to go back um you know people were kind of dependent on their neighbors they depended on family either you know there was not really much of a safety net or they were dependent on jobs or help or you know extended family networks for different things Uh, and then slowly you know people started drifting more towards the market where the market could tell you, you know, could could solve your problems for you, could solve your, you know, sustenance problems, could solve your, you know, I don't know, housing, shelter, everything. If you were a good market participant, you would get rewarded by, yeah. you know, getting yeah, getting the stuff you need. Um and I feel like now because Essentially, the, the, the market has finally been able to plug your social gap in a way or, you know, kind of show you shadows on the wall mm-hmm. that kind of look like social yeah. interaction, but just enough to keep you hooked. Um, yeah. Curious to see, you know, how, how, how what do you think about that position? The, the position of that? Of, yeah, just not needing each other anymore and just kind of having having our needs or at least, you know, um, Maybe getting stimulus to feel like we have our needs met, but rather than actually getting our needs met, which would involve a more complex relationship with people that, you know, has, has different, you know, layers to it. But, you know, and that might sometimes be difficult, which I think is also something we this has happened to us that, you know, you now you don't have to go through difficulties like, you know, if you were like in a small village, you would have to put up with everyone because okay. everyone was essential. You know, you if you hated the baker, you had to get along with the baker because you needed the bread um, and you'd, you'd make it work. But now you don't need to have social friction at all because you have all these intermediating technologies where you can only talk to people who agree with you. And if they don't agree with you, then, you know, screw them. <laughs> Next. Yeah, I think that's definitely right that a lot of it is basically the structures
2: that we've set up our lives to. Um, where you don't know, you know, most of the people along the supply chain that you're a part of, um, or that you are the endpoint of all the whole time. So, I think that that's definitely right. Um, and I think that underneath that though, there is a human need still. Like you, you said the you're not really getting the social interaction. You're getting this kind of pale imitation, and so I think that. The need for I think it's very possible for us to enter into a very long and dark period where this continues, but that ultimately there is a need for real interaction that will probably push through and it's just a matter of time um, and a matter of the number of people who agree on that, basically
1: yeah and i feel like there's there's good signs um this i might also be just my echo chamber but i see people being more interested in like localism and you know returning and just creating almost not communes but like more intentional communities where you know you you meet people face to face um and you can also see this in in a lot of our elites like the people who are yeah. like at the top of things They don't really let their kids play with screens. They really have this almost like ascetic lifestyle where they, you know, live like monks and go on like 30 day retreats in the the mountains and grow orthodox beards and stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you think that it it might trickle down from, you know, from high status people if they start adopting a more like distanced lifestyle
2: from Um, technology? yeah I think so I mean I don't know I go back and forth because sometimes when things seem really bleak I'm like oh my god we're gonna be in this transhumanist nightmare and we're never gonna get out of the pods and (laughs) it's gonna get really dark (laughs) (laughs) um everything's gonna be like vaccine passports and we'll never escape and um so sometimes that's how I feel but I think since things seem to be turning a little bit towards reopening um, and it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to close in the same way, at least here, um, because of pushback, that has made me a little more hopeful um, that, like you said, the sort of soul that we've lost might kind of shine through or push through. so I don't know, but it, the only reason that that would happen is if people keep resisting or people people keep pushing back. Um, so it could go a, another way. Like in a week, I could think, oh, no, yeah, transhumanist future is here. Uh, there's no escape. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I also kind of flip-flop on this one. I, I do think there might be like a... Um, a, a kind of a schism in society where you kind of have a, a, a group of elites breaking off. I mean, they've already broken off in many ways, you know, yeah. they're living very separate lives to people. Um, and then they would kind of have this, you know, monk like existence where they realize that, Oh, you know, this type of stuff is toxic. You know, you don't want to, they want to poison your body with technology and they keep their children separate and there's kind of like a you know eloy morlock type divide where you know yeah. we, we have a, this is all, this is also a dystopian future but it it involves you know the elites breaking off and learning some some trad stuff <laughs> and yeah it's it's quite a i don't know a, a scary reality um ah. I like like you, I, I don't know exactly which way this is gonna go. And I keep hearing from like more libertarian people that, you know, transhumanism is not only fine, it's it's the future and <clears throat> should be embraced as much as possible. And I just I I am not I'm not pro transhumanism at all. It scares the shit yeah. out of me. <laughs> I mean yeah. I, Does- sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just because it's all about you know oh you're just going to be replacing limbs and injecting you with stem cells and making you plump and great in your in your old age and I'm like oh my god that the hubris involved in all of this stuff is absolutely nuts to me like you know the idea that oh you know this this special new stem cell injection is just gonna it's just gonna you know give you give, reduce your crow's feet or whatever they want to do it's like oh you know the the second order effects of all this type of stuff are always you know, not always but often horrendous so I don't know it's um, it's that, that's kind of what scares me that people can never really predict what their domino is going to do a little bit down the line
2: yeah I mean I think uh, yeah I, I definitely agree with you I mean I, I think that a lot of it seems to be I don't know people playing God for lack of a better term um, and it will backfire I think There's a certain level in which if you're looking at the pandemic, you can see in some ways that some of the things that you might try to do as an intervention, um, especially any uh, medicalized intervention, if you are attempting at total control, can backfire and lead to disaster. So I think that, yeah, I'm with you. I don't think that it's a good thing. Um, And I think that... There is a part of um, technology, medicine, science, that has improved quality of life tremendously for many people. Um, And then there is another side of technology, medicine, science, uh, where where we've seen a very dark history and some very disturbing trends that are consistently papered over. We consistently act like certain things never happened, um, and I think COVID has been another, another, just another
1: example of that. Yeah, and there's just there seems to me like a, a strain in, in this, um, in this kind of hyper individualist modernity, post-modernity that we're in that really wants to deny death or not even think about it or just say okay this is you know this is an experience that's entirely optional like we we don't have a death culture anymore just because yeah you know as i say always i harken back to the day back in the day people would see their relatives die in front of them you know it wasn't all medicalized and and stuff so you you be confronted with death just by the nature of things but now it's all just sanitized and like it's death is impossible no it isn't it happens all the time yeah I mean it's a fan I
2: mean it's a fantasy and and for the past year a lot of people have been playing out this fantasy like if I can escape COVID I'll never die or um we can just we can uh have a zero death society if you try to make a zero death society you just end up killing a lot of people like what we've learned is okay if you try to achieve zero death you just end up saving the rich and killing the poor it's not going to work so I think that um that that trend is really disturbing because um I almost feel like you're I've just watched people almost just disfigure themselves for this Fantasy, this imaginary idea that um, you can accept all kinds of contradictions and self refuting ideas and then escape the most fundamental human thing, which is that people are going to die.
1: Yeah. It's, it, it is interesting how much of like almost like a millenarian cult like COVID has become. Like, there, there are people that are so bought into this. And I understand that, you know, we, we do have kind of a, a bit of a meaning crisis. There's not really anything to orient your life around and then this historical event happens uh, and it's all about you know people who are good and people who are bad and people who protect other people and are virtuous and people who are you know don't wear their mask the right way or you know break curfew or you know are not uh, don't understand the the specificities of a level three lockdown <laughs> <or> whatever <laughs> it's 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 all very you know it's it's, a, it's easy to draw a line in the sand between us and them when you have this type of event especially if you have no other lines in the sand except for like orange man or, you know, whatever other, other obsessions you might have. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It, it feels like do. You think this type of religious fervor is, is continuing. I mean, do you, do you feel it fading a little bit, at least in California, or is it still people are still going strong? I
2: mean, Oh, okay. I think there's one group of people who definitely see vaccines as their ticket to freedom and have seen that, as it the whole time who once they get vaccinated now feel like, okay, it's over for me. Or like, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so I know a fair amount of people like that. Um, I think that there's also people who would like to, who will say openly they would like to continue with masks and social distancing, um, after vaccines. Um, I think they're in a minority. Um, I think the main issue is that not necessarily about those specific things continuing, but really that the narrative, I think, is not going to ever change in many people's minds that lockdown was good and it saved people, um, no matter how much evidence is presented to the contrary. So one thing that I find... Um, like really disturbing. Specifically with schools, um, is I've been in meetings with teachers, or I've been in situations with other not teachers, and I've presented you know data about schools not being sites of high transmission, or kids not necessarily being uh, carriers of the virus the same way adults are, etc. And um, in the name of science. I've seen a lot of people reject, you know, data and comprehensive studies. So I think that culture is not going to go away um, where like science has been completely, uh, science in quotes has been completely undermined. uh, And even if we leave behind certain rituals associated with COVID, I think that there will still be a definite ideology where science is whatever I want <laughs> to be true. Um, science is um, whatever is, you know, the ideology of the Democratic Party, that that kind of thing, I don't think is going to go away.
0: Yeah,
1: that's, that's to me as well a super scary thing. Um, idea that, you know, okay, lockdown is one thing, but the the level of government overreach, you know, that everyone talks about democracy and things like that. This has been the least democratic move. (laughs) No no one had a say in this. It was by decree. It was literally military dictatorship grade stuff. Yeah, Everyone pretends that this is, you know, just democracy. Also, the, the misuse of the word democracy. Democracy means you know the people's choice. Yeah, it doesn't mean the Democratic Party and whatever <laughs> you know people who who like the Democrats or whatever you know scientists affiliated with them you know have have on their menu this week, and that's that's the abuse. And I also feel like if, if things like lockdown are now a tool in their toolkit, right. they will whip this out every time. You know, yeah, climate emergency lockdown. Um, you know, anything that's that's named an emergency it will now have to you know can can. Mean that the military can put their boot on your on your neck and it's fine. It's democracy.
2: Yeah, I mean it's uh, some it. They know now that if people are scared, they can basically do whatever they want. <laughs> so it's a great test run for a lot of uh, worse things that could come down the line. Um, and I think that a lot of people underestimate the precedent it sends. It it sets to do stuff like just. Put kids out of school for 12 months um like tell kids and families okay school's closing for two weeks and uh a lot of yeah we know a lot of you don't have internet or you don't have a computer but it's just over for now and then for that to continue for a whole year you're basically undermined decades if not centuries of work people have done to guarantee kids a right to an education so you I think that, especially on the U.S. left, a lot of those consequences are treated as totally trivial or totally natural to a pandemic or totally natural to a virus, and they're actually completely unprecedented and regressive um, and super destructive in terms of how, like, what exactly what you said, how it can come back and be used time and time again against the population.
1: Yeah. And in terms of like learning outcomes for kids, I guess it's, it's, abysmal this year because obviously you know people on the on the democratic left will say okay they're doing online learning they're getting digital skills they are you know being exposed to the same material through you know same teachers it should be fine but uh, i'm curious what what you've seen happen to kids that you know are just they just have to do online learning is it you know because I, i at least my prediction would be that they'd probably be you know restless being in front of a computer and not being able to focus or ask questions in the same way as they were in class
2: Yeah, I think for, um, I mean, I think it's a lot of times the case in education for affluent kids that whatever they get, they kind of, they will, uh, benefit because they have a lot of support. Um, and for kids who are lower income or kids who are from more vulnerable populations, like English language learners or kids with disabilities, Um, they've already been let down by the education system, and now they're even more let down. So I think the outcomes for them, for kids who are already behind, where in the U.S., they're severely behind, like three years behind, four years behind, is a very dire situation. So for kids who are already behind, it's a total catastrophe um, in terms of learning outcomes. And on top of that, it's... uh, I would say even if you could say the academic... Outcomes were okay. It's basically taken all the worst parts of school, all the parts of school that's just um, meaningless learning, indoctrination, and taken away all the best parts of school, which is that you get to be around other kids, you can learn from other kids, you can do hands on activities, you have extracurriculars, uh, stuff like that. So it's taken away the social element that could sometimes act as a bit of a barrier to the worst parts of school as just an you know a factory for making workers and an indoctrination machine for children so it's yeah the worst, that's... it's the worst part of school and none of the good part
1: yeah, I feel like that's that's a dynamic with a lot of things that, you know, kind of put the onus on the individual to kind of help themselves and, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And if I think about, you know, platforms like, you know, OnlyFans is always like a, a thing, you know, that um, it, these are winner-take-all platforms. Yeah. Almost any platform that's like super high hyper-individual is like, okay, they're, look at these winners, you know, they're super empowered. Yep. Yep sure but the people at the bottom were just like scraping by (laughs) doing like super demeaning stuff Um, and you know it really just I feel like, you know, if you put a tech layer on top of everything, the people who are like super tech savvy and, you know, have marketing skills and, you know, know how to do all this stuff will rise to the top while, you know, you're have an excuse to say, oh, we're also empowering everyone else because everyone has access to these platforms. Everyone has access to online learning, you know, having access, you know, in, in the bare bones minimum way, is not enough for, for all these people. Yeah. So yeah, it feels like a, a really big fig leaf that, you know, people are like, you know, oh, we're, we're just we're just empowering people. Um, yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite a, a weird it's a weird um, it's a weird I don't know. I don't know if it's libertarianism, but it's, it's a strange philosophy that I see in a lot of, you know, high high status people espouse nowadays. Um in, in terms of stuff that's been coming up related to school, uh, a lot of people have been pivoting to homeschooling, which is kind of has a digital component. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm curious how, what you see the future of, of homeschooling uh, to be like. Um, I'm not sure. I think
2: if you asked me a couple years ago, I would say, oh, no. I uh, Well, first, I think kids should all be in school. School's so great. <laughs> but now I feel like even as a teacher, my there's been a huge erosion of trust for me with schools or just with other educators. So I could definitely understand a lot more now why parents would want to homeschool. Um, I think that, I think that, I I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many parents, how much that it will increase homeschooling. I think it probably will. I think that um, if kids are doing homeschooling I I would just say it's probably really important for them to also have other activities that involve kids or community spaces, like whether that's sports or through another organization. Um, I think that the tech aspect, I'm not super sure about. I think in public schools, you might see a huge expansion of tech just because of contracts that are done between districts and um, tech companies. Um, Silicon Valley has for a really long time now been giving a lot of, Computers and also education platform access and to um, school districts in the hopes of setting up certain contracts. We had in the spring, you know, free access to a bunch of different platforms that then we had to start paying for in the fall. So I think this is only going to continue in public schools, um, and I'm seeing things like they're developing technology that will read kids' eye movements to see if they're learning (laughs) and stuff so that you don't need a teacher (laughs) to be (laughs) watching them. Like the computer will pick up on cues of their attention, stuff like that. Um, I hope that teachers push back on it, but I'm not really sure that's going to happen. And I think another thing we've seen in the U S is a huge move to private schools because private schools have been in person. So I think it might be also a luxury thing to, be at a table with other kids having a group discussion, <laughs> be at a table with other kids doing a group project mm-hmm. might become this big status thing for uh, rich people <laughs> that only their kids get that while other kids are having their facial expressions <laughs> read by AI.
1: <laughs> that's that's really interesting. So private schools have been in person throughout this time? or Yeah, not, really? not
2: the entire time, but I'm... Uh, but a lot of the time, and I, uh, I want to say they started giving at least in California, they started giving waivers for them to open in the fall.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's a you know I I, I mean I, I don't have any like detailed experience here in, in Romania, but I don't I don't think that would would have been the case here. Like when you have a handful of private schools, it's true. It's not it's not as, as big. But I could imagine like the uproar of having that that different the difference between between public and private. I mean here here everyone sends their kids to public schools. Yeah. It's just, you know, communist tradition. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, the idea of private school. I think we had one private school when I was growing up and it was in Bucharest, and it was the American school for the expats from the embassy. Yeah. But <laughs> that was that was it. Um, it's, it's definitely a new concept. Um there's there's something I keep hearing from people who are involved in kind of this localism movement and you know homeschooling homesteading uh, is kind of these mixed um, you know kind of community schools with mm-hmm. mixed age children like almost like little house on the prairie and a lot of people are saying that that's you know it's it's a, it's a good system because you kind of don't have the same like feral hierarchies between kids of the same yeah. age where they have to you know compete to be boss so i don't know i don't know if you have any experience with this but does does this sound like a, an interesting spin off of the of the kind of public private school it's just education kid, it's kids
2: of all different ages all together
1: yeah and I think there's a, the way they do this now is they kind of have a, a kind of universal teacher that you know oversees the you know different learning directions and kind of you know sits with different kids there's not really that much teaching happening to everyone yeah but they have little groups yeah and they all have projects and the, the teacher's more of a coordinator but they all come together and they do stuff Together, like I know, sports activities and artistic activities or stuff. So it's you know partially together, mostly apart in terms of what they actually learn.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't really have any um, experience with anything like. I don't really know anything like that here. Um, but I mean, it, that sounds more rooted in what would be a good educational practice, which is to have kids interacting <laughs> with each other and also having individualized supports or differentiated types of activities based on their age or their needs um, versus, you know, a one size fits all model where kids don't interact at all. (laughs) So, but I don't know, I don't know of anything like that here.
1: Yeah, it's uh, the stuff that I've heard is, is really like an incipient stages and it's tied to these kind of uh, conscious communities and the parents are really involved. And as you can imagine, it's quite it's it's almost a, it's a pretty elite it's thing to do because you're kind of, you know, essentially attaching the school to a commune. Yeah. But I think it's a, it's an interesting experiment, especially with people who, I don't know, are trying to to detach a little bit from the from the from the grid in, in some ways. Yeah. Um. So i want to ask you a hypothetical question if you were a dictator or education czar for a year or 10 years uh, you know what what type of, of you know changes would you make to, to the current us system because that's obviously the one you're most familiar with but you know what what direction would you would you move things into uh, to you know improve outcomes for most kids because obviously it's uh it's not going to be you know there's no there's no solution to everything but it does seem like the the status quo is quite dystopian so what what would what would you nudge nudge things into
2: well um i mean i think the class class size is a huge issue um in u.s public schools so i think uh hiring more staff and having bigger i'm sorry not bigger smaller classes would be a big issue but to hire more staff you need uh better pay for teachers so you need that and then you also need better teacher training which is a huge problem just lack of good uh programs for teachers or compre- it's not necessarily the quality, it's just the comp it's not comprehensive and it doesn't necessarily always prepare you super well to be a classroom teacher. Um so I think yeah training, hiring, small class sizes, and equal funding for all schools, um because of some of our funding formulas are really messed up because they're based on property taxes and all kinds of um, inequ- unequal formulas. Um, you, I think that the other thing I would say is like right now we are going to be opening, but we have hybrid models and we also have masks and social distancing in the classrooms. So as like a pressing issue, I just think that it needs to be seriously evaluated, especially for the youngest kids, um, whether these things are really necessary. And I mean, it's really hard to convince people to even let kids come to school one day a week right now in California. But I think a lot of teachers and even parents right now are not very well informed about the relative risks and the potential negative consequences of a lot of the safety hygiene theater going into opening. Um, And that would probably be another major starting point is having an actual risk assessment around reopening um, and maximizing as much as possible kids' opportunity to see each other's faces and uh, be around each other
1: yeah. Yeah, there's just so much stuff that's just not measurable. It's not it's just not legible to the state and it's very hard to to make predictions. I mean, now you you've laid out a lot of the statistics around the mental health toll that it's taken, at least as much as it's measurable up to this point, but I feel like a lot of stuff it just falls by the wayside because it's not something you can shove into a spreadsheet. Um, through whoever is doing impact assessment or whatever, even if they if they even are doing stuff like that, because a lot of this stuff seems to be just you know political whim uh, and saying okay no we we need the security theater. Um, you um, mentioned um, funding. I mean funding is a big subject, but there's also been a lot of debate in the U.S. about charter schools, um, voucher systems, and things like that. Like what's what's your what's your feeling about about The potential for charter schools is that is that a viable model or is it overblown um well i think that charter schools um
2: are i get okay i think charter schools i can understand um why families and um also why teachers or educators uh could be attracted to charter schools um, I've taught in a building that was also co-located with the charter school. Um, so I know like those teachers and staff also very, just want to teach kids, help kids. Um, so I definitely understand why people think charter schools are beneficial. Um, I think it's really important in the U.S. to keep in mind the way in which, um, investors or people who found charter schools can profit from it. Um, and uh, in terms of both the real estate schemes that go on, and also tax breaks that happen. So I think that it's a basically an avenue to privatize a lot of public education and also to direct public funding to private people or, or organizations. So I don't think it's a solution. Um, And I think that there's not a lot of evidence, overall evidence, that they've improved any learning outcomes for kids. Um, So I would say overall it's not – it's a negative trend. And they're also – I mean, there's a lot of problems with the teachers union, but it's also – they're the – staff at charter schools are not unionized, they have uh, crazy working hours, and they um, don't have a lot of protections. Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: So um, there's there's been quite a lot of negative attention on the teachers unions uh, lately, yeah, especially, especially be. COVID <laughs> because, you know, the reaction's been. <laughs> so you 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 agree that they should have handled things maybe in, in a different way. Like, what's what's your what's your take on the current situation of uh, of American teachers unions? Um, I think it's really
2: shameful and embarrassing. Um, I think it's really sad because in a lot of ways, the teachers union, the US uh, teachers union was one of the last holdouts before full privatization of our education system. And now it's completely undermined all of its, it's just completely undermined all of its own principles. And um, it's, basically thrown away a lot of the confidence and trust that the public had in it because we had a wave of teacher strikes um in a few different regions of the U.S. and we had a lot of public support um and I feel like now if I was a parent I wouldn't really trust the teachers union or want to support them based on Uh, their insistence that schools stay closed, despite all the evidence that the best option for public health would be to open them. And also that it wouldn't be a high risk situation for teachers. So I think that it's very unfortunate. And um, sometimes I don't know, I've uh, basically heard people kind of say that, I, you know, it's not good to criticize the union, but I think it's really important to be honest about what's happened because then there's, if you're not honest about what's happened, then uh, you're never going to have any accountability or you're just going to keep repeating the same mistakes. And um, it's also important for people to know that not all teachers supported what the union has done. Um, So I think that... uh, If it was, you know, a year and a half ago um, and you told me that I was going to be really upset with the union, I probably wouldn't have believed you because I was involved with it for a Mm -hmm. while. But now um, I think that it's yeah, like I said, it's pretty shameful what's happened.
1: Yeah, did you get any direct pushback from from the union or anything about your comments or did you get any blowback from from being outspoken about this? Um,
2: no. I think people just think I'm kind of crazy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I but, think you're 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 crazy in a good way. <laughs> I haven't gotten any pushback from like the
2: union, but maybe from just people I know, like who aren't teachers or who aren't in the union, but who really want um, unions and labor politics to be the answer. Um, I don't think that a pro, and my response is that I just don't think it's a pro labor position to say anything the union does is good, no matter what it's doing, because this is a very bureaucratic union. Um, you know, California teachers, I think the average salary, I can't remember, but like a starting salary is something, you know, 45000 average for a first-year teacher in the state. And then our union um, officials are making six-figure salaries, not like a million dollars sometimes, so... Um, they're not and all of our dues money goes to not all of it but a significant portion does go to political activities that don't necessarily improve our con- working conditions um so i don't think it's pro labor to say oh, okay but that's fine <laughs> um that's still not what we want from our union
1: yeah i feel like you know if if you have a, a you know a union that's that's moving things into the direction that you know really um, is is to the detriment of labor in general, yeah. like essentially it, it's it's aligned with the most capitalistic incentives in, in society. And you know if, if your union has the same politics as Amazon, then maybe you know it's uh, it's, it's not it's not living up to its promise. Yeah, definitely um in terms of um of of this show i have typically i have a, a show question which is uh related to a subversive thinker or writer or book that that you um that has influenced your thinking or anything i mean we've we've had everything from you know video game designers to rock bands or you know so anything that you think uh, is not getting enough uh, attention from people that might you know uh, benefit from uh, a, a bit of spotlight um, and maybe related to teaching could be related to anything else um,
2: just anything like any anything I think- living
1: or dead anything anything i don't want this to be too broad i don't want you to you know because sometimes if the question's too broad then it's like what what even are you asking but you know something that's uh you know a, a cultural a producer of cultural artifacts that has been influential to you, and you think that you know people would, would do well reading him or her, or you know, whatever could be a book, could be whatever you, you'd like.
2: Um, okay, I would recommend um this book called Um Fatelessness. Have you heard of it? It's, no, no, okay, I don't want to butcher his name, but um, it's a I'm pretty sure he was Hungarian. He won the Nobel Prize, and the book is called Faithlessness. Um, And it's and he was a Holocaust survivor, and the book is about his. Um, it's not autobiographical, but it's like related to his experience. And I would really recommend this book because um, a lot of kind of Holocaust industry books or movies. Um, really portrays uh, it as a kind of cataclysmic uh, aberration event that is very clear while it's happening, what it is, uh, why it is, and how it's happening. And in Fatelessness, um, he more um, kind of... The, the main theme is uh, people are going through the steps, they're going through the motions... Um, And they're just uh, taking each step one by one, not realizing where it's leading or what is happening. Um, And I think this is very explanatory for a lot of the phenomena that we see where we're slowly taking steps and we don't really know what we've entered until it's over or until we can reflect back on it. Um, And... Especially because the perspective in the book, I think he's an adolescent. So that is also very much how adolescents operate. Whatever is happening when I'm 12 is what being a 12-year-old is like for everyone. Um, So I really recommend the book. Um, I think it's very uh, insightful into the way that it feels to experience a major event as just a natural progression of your life. Um, and then I, and then he has another book after that called Fiasco, which is basically more what happened after the Holocaust. And that's also um, worth checking out because it's uh, kind of the continuity after. So there's like continuity of my regular life to this horrible thing and then the continuity from this horrible thing to regular life after that
1: yeah I've, I haven't heard of the book, but I, I really like the theme because that's just how history happens. yeah, I and mean, it happens in little in little moments. Um, and there's there's another book also about the Second World War, not not the Holocaust specifically. Uh, it's called uh, Human Smoke by Nicholson Baker. Um, it's, it's kind of it kind of tracks the same theme, but the way it's built, it's in like little historical vignettes uh what was leading up to the to the second world war like during the war and kind of like kind of as it, as it was was winding down uh, and it's like all these like just random you know almost incredible historical events where I don't know you know uh, goebbels was going to a dinner and he made a, a terrible joke and like it, it's, it's really it's really interesting because it's like it just builds the the atmosphere and the randomness of all the little events that kind of created the the, the momentum for all of these big events to happen, but they're all just like, just random, you know, fragments of history that you know you could see how they led up to to disaster. But yeah. each each in their own right, they're just kind of like nothing. And it's 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 really it's a really good lens to have. I, I like it. So is, is it faithlessness and fiasco?
2: Yeah, and faithlessness, I would recommend more. <laughs>
1: That's the highlight. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Um yeah, I mean, is there is there anything you're working on currently or any any place you'd like people to visit to 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 read your stuff?
2: Um well, I am going to be working on a couple articles, but I don't know when they will be done. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, keep an eye out for it. Um I, Yeah, I'm just uh, it's I just have to get myself together and and get them done.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'll be, I'll be keeping an eye out for it, and um, I recommend that people follow you on Twitter for the the most, you know, I don't know, the, the most well framed perspectives on, on our current, you know, uh, a slow motion disaster. So I, I really recommend uh, Alex's uh, Twitter, which is uh, at Galaxy Brain. Um, with a brain that is not spelled like normal brain <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to spell in English because we have a phonetic uh, um, we have phonetic uh, what's that called? Oh, pregnancy brain sorry, uh, phonetic vocabulary here in, in Romania so whenever I saw movies about spelling bees in America I thought that was just absolutely crazy why we need to spell stuff but now I need to spell stuff so I don't know how <laughs> so if you want to spell your Twitter handle please go ahead spell it
2: yeah, if you yeah, want um, to, but I oh. think
1: it's, it's good.
2: It's, uh, uh, yeah, at Galaxy Brain, G-A-L-E-X-Y-B-R-A-N-E.
1: Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Yeah, that might seem excessive, but yeah. it's just because the, the, the last thing is un, it's not intuitive, so it's good. Yeah, uh, It will be in the show notes as well, so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all, <laughs> so, it's it. all crazy. <laughs> And I also recommend that people read uh, your article in, in the Bellows for, um, what was the title of the
2: article? Um, it's called The Great COVID Class War, and it's, it's about um, essentially the massive wealth transfer um, and how it happened
1: yeah yeah that I definitely recommend that because it really strikes all the all the necessary chords for people to get woke on this stuff because you know if you're if you're uh, wavering about the effectiveness of lockdown or you know the the secondary second order consequences of it, uh, yeah, read, read this and get back to me <laughs> to be honest <laughs> so Alex, thank you so much yeah, Thank for, you so for, nice for having on. me it's It's been a pleasure. I will uh, see you on the interwebs.
2: yeah, thank you. Have, have a great um, rest of your day.
0: <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you.